Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What's up, everybody? Today, we got a great show. Our guest is the chief investment strategist at the Luthold Group, an independent investment research firm. In today's show, we're talking about markets with somebody who's been doing it for over three decades. Our guest explains why the shift from a depressionary bust to a boom last year was unlike anything he's seen. Then we talk about where current sentiment is and how investors are positioned. Finally, he walks through his framework for analyzing whether inflation is transitory and what he expects to happen as the Fed continues to taper. Be sure to stick around and hear where our guests think you should and shouldn't be invested in if we experience a market pullback. Please enjoy this episode with the Luthol Group's Jim Paulson. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me today. Live from Minneapolis, listeners have heard the story, but you haven't. Last time I was there, I just arrived in Minneapolis for the National Championship Basketball Tournament a few years ago, and I was walking down the street by myself. This is close to downtown, by the way, and the first thing that crossed me on the sidewalk was a turkey, and I looked around and I said, that can't be a turkey. Is that a chicken? That's a turkey just wandering around in the middle of downtown Minneapolis. Those turkeys are ugly creatures, man. They're big and ugly. He took one look at me, <laughs> got out of the way, walked across the street, and that was that. I loved it. Great town. So you put out a ton of awesome content. I get a daily email with one of your charts and missives. This has sort of been, I feel like, the last year almost, and I'm trying to say this in a thoughtful way, excluding all the death and destruction and everything else, kind of like an amazing time to be an economist. There's so many things going on and it's almost like a lab for what's going on in the world. And here we are, 2021, hopefully coming out of it. Let's get started and we'll just start broad. What's the world look like you today? We can start with the US economy. Seems to be rocking and rolling. My local Mexican joint seems to get more and more expensive with the margaritas. Yeah, I agree with you. There's so much that's uh, out of bounds today, so to speak. But, you know, I've been in the business since 1983. And I swear, I, I've been through all kinds of out of bounds episodes. Even when I started with the double digit interest rates and no one had ever seen, we came off the, fat, the biggest decade of inflation ever in our history. And everything's been a first ever since. So in some regard, as weird as this environment is today, it's not that much different than it's been for much of U.S. history where everything is kind of the first. At the, I think every generation has that same kind of feel. I guess when I look at things today, to me, two big things have played into the post-pandemic sort of situation. One is that what the pandemic did from an economic standpoint that's probably the most significant and not, like you said, leave the health thing out of it for a minute, just the economic standpoint, is that it put the world economic cycle on the biggest bust-to-boom cycle almost ever in the world history, at least in post-war history in the United States, if not U.S. history, in that we went down by about year-on-year by 10% plus in 2020, which was the biggest drop in real GDP year-on-year in post-war history. And then within less than a year, we're back up over 12% year-on-year, which is almost the fastest rate of growth in post-war history. Now, what makes that particularly interesting 
is that we basically had all the players and policy officials around this deal with what was essentially at the moment thought to be a depressionary bust that no one knew if it ever ever was going to end because it's a health crisis. We had no sense of it. We closed the economy by pronouncement. It wasn't because of recession. We just declared it closed. No one had ever seen it because we didn't know how long it was going to last. It was a fearful situation. And then within a matter of months, we gave everybody a post-war boom. And going from a depressionary bust to a post-war boom created a lot of different things. One big thing is it created a lot of panic. So I think some of the outsized policies we have from around the globe are the result of policy officials just purely panicking with what they were facing and just saying, we're going to dump everything we got and we'll look at it later. But it affected every all players. It affected consumers who received massive amounts of liquidity and stimulus checks, and they, they hoarded most of it because they were scared to death, at least initially. And so we had massive savings rates and unspent future demand power sitting on the sidelines for a period of time. And it created, it put expectations on the biggest whiplash ever, where you think about Wall Street facing a depressionary bust, having their expectations do that. And then within a matter of months, all of a sudden, biggest boom ever, and they couldn't catch up. And what it did to companies, I think, is the most significant. Companies normally start to pick up a recession. They start to get a little more conservative and you know, reduce activities a little bit, pare back debts they do to try to live through a downturn. And then it takes a while before they realize they're in recession and then they get a little more conservative. That's not what happened here. When we made the proclamation, we're going to shut it down. They instantly went to how to survive a pandemic, not how to get through a recession. And so they created the biggest drop ever in real GDP, the biggest job loss ever, the biggest inventory drawdown ever. And essentially, all of corporate businesses across the globe went to their most efficient operating spot, minimum cost to keep a business operating, most efficient spot. And then you give them a post-war boom, you're going to have an unprecedented profit cycle as a result of that. It wouldn't have happened had we not had everyone prepare for a pandemic to get to the other side of the pandemic. But because of that, we put them in the most efficient position and then gave them a wartime boom. To me, that's one big thing that's happened. The other big thing that kind of dovetails with that is policy officials have just decided to try something new. In the last 20 years in this country, we've had the slowest real GDP growth rate, the average annualized slowest growth rate ever outside of the Great Depression. For years, that's been disappointingly lower and lower and lower. The last recovery that we had from from 09 to 20, it grew just a little over 2%, which we used to call the stall speed of a recovery. We persisted at that throughout. And I think Paul's fish has said, you know, we've been doing this forever, quick to tighten, quick to worry about inflation ever since the 1970s. It just isn't working. Growth is slowing, inequality is spreading. And so they decide to run it hot. And that's what they're doing. What I mean by run it hot is they're running the growth rate, nominal growth rate in the, in the country above the long-term cost of capital or rate structure, the 10-year yield. Now, we've done this before. We did it from 1950 to 1980. The first 15 years, 1950 to 1960, was an absolute massive success. Running it hot, that is keeping the growth rate always above the rate structure, led to a situation where we had really solid economic growth, fabulous productivity, great job creation, more times than not, a wonderful stock market was interrupted by recessions, and we did not get inflation, and we had kept a low rate structure. The second period was 65 to 80, where we had 
Run the same policy resulted in runaway inflation, and of course, the highest rates in inflation ever in history. So here we got two examples of how to run hot. Ever since 1980, we've run it cold. We have chronically run real nominal GDP below the rate structure most of the time since 1980, and now we're opposite that. And the question is going to be: Are we going to get the 50 to 65 golden era of capitalism, or are we going to get the 65? And that's the debate that's still going on. My druthers on that is that we're going to get some leftover higher inflation here as a result of running it hot, but it's not going to be run away. I think maybe we move inflation up from an average of two-ish to an average of three-ish eventually. That a lot of this inflation problem in the short term is indeed due to the bust-to-boom cycle we put the economy on where supply just can't catch up. That'll, that will eventually catch up. But what I'm most excited about, and this gets to the markets, is that I think there's things that have happened post-pandemic here that are going to leave a sustainable mark on the economy to have it grow faster than it has for decades, not the result of policy necessarily. In other words, once we hit both the monetary and fiscal cliffs, which are coming fairly soon, <laughs> they're just going to fall out. We have one more fiscal juicer and then that's probably done. And monetary is already starting to turn. Those are negative forces, but other things have happened to leave a lot of positive force growth. And so I think this recovery is likely to last several more years and is likely to grow more like three and a quarter to three and a half rather than two and a quarter, two and a half. That is a huge difference and we'll feel right there. So of those things, we look at what has resulted in the possibility we could grow faster. And I'll just throw out a bunch of things that I see. One is pent-up demands, which have not just started once the pandemic started. They've been building ever since at least the great financial crisis in 08. If I look at durable goods as a percent consumption, percent of GDP, they're a full percent lower than where they average most of the time in post-war history and are just now turning the corner in the last decade. If you give people the wherewithal, there's a lot of room to catch up, is my point. And then we have, I think, a lot of new job holders that are going to come to this market on a delayed fashion compared to most recoveries. So here we're in a year and a half, maybe two years into a new recovery. And we're yet to get this big slog of workers returning to the labor force yet, which that means they're going to come next year, the year after, whatever, adding to growth in a way that isn't normal at this point in the cycle, so to speak. And I'm talking about because of the particulars of COVID, making childcare more important until schools are operational. And that might even take more until next year before it starts to happen there with Delta, for example, and kids under 5 and 12 not yet vaccinated. And then also because we overdid the unemployment benefits, we kept people on the sidelines and that's going to change. So we're going to have this added juicer with job creation. I also think that we have something that we have done in the past recoveries a little bit. When the unemployment rates fall into around 5% or so, we start to get an increase in the labor force participation rate. We might not recover all the way back to where we were 15 years ago. But I do think we might get close to the, where we were pre-pandemic. And if we do, if I put that into the mix, right now, even though we got a 5.2% unemployment rate or wherever it's at, the effective unemployment rate is closer to 7.5%. So we have a lot of capacity there left if that does come through. That means you can grow faster and absorb. We also have a lot of room to re increase confidence yet in this recovery. 
I mean, there's some measures like the University of Michigan Consumer Confidence Index, which is still lower now, supposedly, than it was at the bottom of the pandemic in early 20. Other ones show a better result. Why is that, by the way? Is that just an artifact or just these CEOs are grumpy? One of the things that did, Mad Boys, it really did elevate all of our fears. And we still have a fair number of fears. I personally see just behaviorally things like four and a half trillion dollars of cash balances being held today in money market mutual funds, which generally you see the peaks of those money funds associated with market bottoms. We're seeing it after market high. We're seeing 17 to 18 trillion dollars of deposits available out there. You're seeing the ratio of a high beta to low vol investing still close to almost its lowest level since 1990, rather than the high levels of anything we saw like for example, in 2000 overall, we're seeing a continuous flow into bond mutual funds and some flow now into equity mutual funds, but a lot more still going to bonds. This to me, just as an example of defensive kind of conservative behaviors that exist in part because of the pandemic, when you look at historically, when confidence is low, future stock returns are high because there's room to improve. Just like when there's slack in the job market, future return potential is high. So I see a fair amount of slack. We've also had two really nice things. One is the boom in household formations, which is generally driven by millennials. And they've finally decided to get married, form households. And what the next thing they're going to do is go into their peak spending years when they start filling out those households and having kids. And it's going to be like a mini baby boom again coming. At the same time, inexplicably, and I don't even understand this per se, we've had a boom in new business formations. Maybe it's tribute to the creativeness of capitalism, but while other companies are going out of business, we just have a boom of new business formation. Those two together are dynamite for sustaining growth rates in the future. You brought up a couple of things that I found really interesting. The first being, you know, you talk about sentiment and I love talking about one of my favorite examples being the old American Association of Individual Investors. Are you bullish? neutral or bearish. And like December 99 was the most bullish they ever were. And then March 2009 were the most bearish they ever were. You couldn't make it up. Economists couldn't craft a better ridiculous scenario. And I look at it about every month or so just out of curiosity. It's been pretty melancholy despite the stock market hitting new highs. And usually, like if you look at the quantitative studies on it, and y'all's group at Luthold has done a bunch here, when people are fearful, usually the returns are high and vice versa. So I was looking at it recently and it's it's still not where I would think it would be where we are in the market. So who knows? I agree with you on that. You know, the AAII just fell to pretty close to its lows of the entire post-pandemic cycle. If you look at conference boards, bulls, less bears, they've come up, but they've kind of, like you said, been melancholy. They haven't returned to. It is interesting. People are still holding a lot of gold. The ratio of gold prices to the overall CRB index is still closer to a 50-year high. It's off from its really big highs, but still closer to that than it's low since 1970. So a lot of things to me are fairly conservative yet. And I think, you know, we've got room to improve that and get more animal spirit behaviors in play yet before this recovery ends. The business formation is an interesting topic because I have a opinion here that I don't think is widely held where over the past five, six, seven years, I've seen an explosion in really amazing startup companies. And whether that's simply because software and the internet and in the last year distributed workforces like it's all coming together whether it's because 
you've had a lot of successful tech companies get liquidity, in which case these guys then start funding the startups or whether it's the QSBS legislation, which gives startup funding of companies less than 50 million a big tax break, which, by the way, may be on the chopping block. I was ranting about this on Twitter because I said, my God, this was a policy approved under Obama that the Democrats are now trying to kill that I said, at least I've said before on Twitter, was, in my opinion, one of the most impactful pieces of legislation for business creation on the tech startup side in history. And now we're trying to get rid of it. Anyway, it could be some of those factors. I don't know. But it's a weird barbell dislocation for me because as a quant, I look at stock market valuations and I'm always negative Nancy on that sort of part of the world. But then I look at these young startups and it's so optimistic and incredible to see all these companies start every day. There's a part of me that agrees a lot with what you're saying, what you're saying. In some ways, I, I've thought that we have euthanized ourselves. I don't mean kill ourselves. I mean, made ourselves younger as a country through technology. We're the unadulterated leader of new era innovation. And in some sense, we have an older demographic. But just think about from an economic standpoint, because we lead the world with technology, how much younger we are, our demographic is, even though it's just as old as Europe and Japan, economically, we are so much younger as a result of that. And it just doesn't stop. The great bulk of innovation still comes out of here. Now it's also being driven a little bit by a younger demographic and millennials and next gens, but technology itself and continue to be a leader in that area, I think is a huge, huge benefit for the United States that's going to continue to pay dividends. But in any way, just real quick through some of these other ones, we know about the massive unspent savings that have been built up. Those won't all come out in one year. We obviously have to rebuild inventories here. And normally we don't have a, such a mismatch where production has to catch up to supply, but we do. I think we've got incredibly healthy household balance sheets for the first time in decades. The debt to income ratio for U.S. households is now the lowest it's been since 1995. Debt service is even lower because of low rates. Net worth is just exploding to the upside. They're chunk full of liquidity. They have incredible debt capacity. If we can ever convince them they want to do that again, that's kind of like the 1950s <laughs> a little bit again. And then there's banks, which have incredible lending capacity because nobody's been lending money for so long. It's kind of an interesting possibility there overall. The last big thing here is productivity. Obviously, it's been up since the pandemic with GDP back to new highs where employment is still below previous peaks. We're having quite a surge in productivity. But I think there's good reason. I've written about this and showed it that if you go back to 1950, whenever tech stocks have a prolonged leadership cycle, that's followed by a pickup in productivity with about a trail of about three years. We've just gone through arguably the second largest tech cycle of our history, maybe the third. And I think it's going to be followed by a sustained pickup in productivity, which could make a huge difference for growth. So to me, the biggest thing investors should think about is if we do grow three and a quarter rather than two and a quarter in real GDP terms, and if you put inflation at three, even if you want to say it's a little higher, we're going to get back to the five and a half sixes area. That puts you back in old spirit capitalism back in the good golden days. And I don't know if we fully appreciate that yet and what that means for stock investors overall. And I guess that's where I'm at. Now, the course of the wild cards inflation and whether it is truly transitory 
I think it is. I think we have a lot of disinflationary force yet in the world. We've got lousy demographics in the developed world. China's now got even worse demographics, supposedly the leader of the emerging world, which I think it's falling out of bed on, but that's going to hold growth down. We have a very much more open economy, for example, in the United States than we had in the 1970s. We're much more globally competitive, which holds prices down. Our labor force growth is growing at best 1% a year. In the 1970s, it grew 2.5% a year. So we're not going to do that. Ever again, we got falling monetary velocity as a chronic statement for decades now, as opposed to flat. We certainly don't have the inflationary mindset that I did as a kid, where every day, every year, the new school pants went up and so did car prices and everything else. Today, back then, the leader was automobile industry, which sticker prices went up every year. Today, the leader is tech, where sticker prices go down every year. So I do think that those global forces will win out. And this is more of a bust to boom inflation cycle. But I think it's going to have some leftover remnants, leaving inflation a little bit permanently higher, just not sort of runaway inflation overall. It sounds like that would be a pretty awesome scenario if all this comes together. You know, a lot of people, particularly in the media, are hot and bothered about when and how is the Fed going to do tapering? And what does that mean? And what are the implications as an economist? I'm sure you have some opinions on that. Maybe tell our listeners just in general why this is something everyone's so concerned with and what are your general belief system on how that plays out? Tapering, uh, in a broader sense, is just a decline in the rate of monetary growth. And it is a long history of monetary growth rates leading or coincidentally leading the economic growth rate and coincidentally a lot of times with stock market performance. It's not a perfect relationship by any stretch of the imagination, but it's certainly been there, not just in recent years, but for decades, of course. So it's always very concerning when you go from accommodative to a less accommodated to eventually a full-on tightening in not only monetary, but fiscal policy as well, perhaps. We're going to face that. Now, the thing is to remember is we face that in every recovery. So this one's no different. I would say this. Here's what's been interesting for me and what I've written about is both quantitative easing, the annual growth in that, and the annual growth of the M2 money supply have already been tapering for months this year. Both of those year on year peaked out in February. The quantitative easing peaked out an annual growth rate of 80% year on year, it's now under 20%. The M2 money supply peaked out at 27% year on year, and it's now down to 12%. And my point is a big part of the tapering, quote unquote, is already passed. There's going to be a little more, but what's left is a lot less ferocious than what's already occurred. And you can say, well, it didn't have any impact. Well, yeah, it did. Had a lot of impact. I mean, remember, bond yields peaked right when tapering started in early March. Commodity prices stopped soaring and kind of moved sideways since. Growth stocks came back into favor once tapering started, and cyclicals and small caps rolled over in terms of leadership ever since. International markets quit outperforming. That is, there was a defensive sectors have been market performers ever since tapering began. So there's been a ton of impact from the tapering that's already been in place. It just hasn't caused a 10% correction in the S&P 500, but it's done everything else you'd normally associate with tapering. I would argue at this point that this has been so well advertised that this to me is a situation where you might want to sell on the rumor and buy on the news. And by the time we officially start tapering, most of the actual tapering, I think, is already behind us. There's been a lot of pain 
We've had rotational leaderships, which people have noticed. But part of the reason for that is because we had first a monetary explosion, and then we had a tapering, which caused there to be shifting rotational leaderships already. Well, you had a nice piece about defense recently that you were said, let's talk D about a couple of weeks ago. You want to walk us through your thesis there where is that going to be a good place to hide or not in the coming months? Three things on that. One is certainly if the market hits an air pocket, which it's going to happen sometime, we're not going to ever not ever have a correction. I wouldn't be shocked if we have one yet this year. In the real intense portion of those corrections, you know, Matt, when it really drops, usually a big chunk of it happens within a week or so. You know, that's kind of how they happen or a month. And during that period, defense stocks will do fine. They'll do just fine. But I'm not so sure over the whole period of the correction from the time it goes down to the time it sort of flattens to the time it comes back, that defense will outperform over that whole period. I think it's going to have some problems. And the reason I say that is a couple things. One is when you look back historically all the way to 1950, when we've grown below two and a half percent real GDP, defense out generally outperforms, I can't think of the exact number, something like 4% a year or something like that. But when you grow more than two and a half percent in real GDP terms and underperforms over 3% a year. And what we've gotten used really, at least since 2000, we've gotten used to growing less than two and a half percent a lot of the time during recoveries. Whereas prior to that, the only time you do that, you were headed to a recession when defense stocks would do great, defensive stocks. But now we've had expansions <laughs> where which grow two and a half. And of course, that's just like the perfect spot for defensive stocks, really sluggish, disappointing growth, but it's still an expansion and defensive stocks have done really well. My point is this time, even if the economy slows down and we have a correction, we might have a correction while we're growing 5% or 4.5% or 4% real GDP, which is probably going to be too fast for defensive stocks to really do as well as they have historically during corrections. And the other problem that I think they could have here is Delta. And we've never had a correction yet during COVID. And there has been, I just published this this week, a very close relationship between case counts on COVID and what performs, not necessarily the overall market, but whether defensive stocks outperform, growth stocks outperform, small caps, cyclicals, just trace out that COVID cycle really close. So do bond yields. So do commodity prices. And my point is, is that right now we're in a situation where if we have a correction while the Delta variant is peaking and coming back down again, okay, a correction would send you to defensive, but a drop in the COVID variant is going to send you to cyclicals and economically sensitive stocks. So we could have a correction where defensive stocks don't do near as well because it comes in the context of another reopening cycle in the economy due to a pullback of COVID. As you mentioned earlier, being an economist for the past 50 years, it feels like weird is normal. We like to say that when it comes to actual financial market returns, normal market returns are extreme. You know, everyone expects like a 10%, but it's not 10% a year. It's sometimes it's up 30, down 20, all over. One of the weirdest parts, I think, for a lot of people this cycle was wrapping their heads around interest rates and seeing interest rates around the world go to zero and then just keep going. There felt like a period last year where that might be on the table for U.S. interest rates. 
How do you think about where we stand with sovereign bonds and corporates too, if you want, around the world today? Is it something where it feels like they're artificially low? I mean, granted, we've had, I don't know, how many decades of Japan being an outlier there too. And then within the US, is that a world major asset class? Is it something you see, is it going to be totally dictated by inflation or what? I don't know the answer is like, I don't know any of this stuff. And I've been in the business long enough to be wrong several times over. So just take my best guess at this stuff. That's the most thoughtful response you can have, by the way. Those of us who've been in markets long enough, you either have the humility and scars or you are no longer involved in the markets anymore. There's not a whole lot of in between. I tend to believe that the market bonds are being priced right where the market wants to price them today. I don't really think they're overly distorted by QE. And I don't know if that's right. I think the price where they should be priced. I, I tell you what, rates have been low in the past. They were pretty low in the 50s. They were extremely low in the Great Depression, of course. I'll tell you what's different about today versus those periods. The depression contracted much further than we had here. But we've never really, as I said, we never had a period where we grew that slow, a little over 2% for that long of a period of time. And it's not just us. I mean, we had a bad experience, but Japan has been doing this for twice as long as we have. And Europe's been there maybe one and a half times as long as we have. When this started with Japan, there was only seven economies in the world that mattered. And one of them went down big time. And then another big chunk went down right after that. And then we finally did. So we've had really 30, 40 years of incredibly sluggish growth, not ever before seen in U.S. history. We've had depressionary collapses that then came back, but never a persistent song. So what does that do to rates? Well, I've always been believed that rates don't set necessarily for the given year environment. They're affected heavily by what you've been through, just like solar stock prices and the like. And I think a persistently sluggish growth environment like never seen before in its persistency has led to a rate structure in the world that's got really low. The short rates were negative in the Great Depression. You know, bill rates went to premiums. And so it's not like it's unprecedented overall. When you look back historically at the 10-year yield in the United States, for example, you will see that inflation common in our history was above the 10-year yield. That is not at all uncommon scenario. Indeed, in the last decade almost, from 2012 to date, the 10-year treasury yield since 2012 now has been below the median CPI inflation rate in this country about 75% of the time. It is currently, but it's not anything new post-pandemic. It's been that way a lot of the time since then. And of course, so is Europe's and and a lot of Japan's. and, And so I think this has more to do with some of these longer growth expectations, birthing a whole culture that expects a certain growth rate than it does with quantitative easing. For example, it was very clear to me that bonds had, the 10-year yield had no trouble moving from half a percent to one and three quarters percent while the Fed was doing $120 billion of QE every month from roughly September last year to February this year. Why suddenly in March, when the Fed didn't change what it was doing at all, did it have any trouble going up? And so I think it's doing what it wants to do. I think a couple of things affect it overall. And ultimately, I think that in this cycle, if it lasts long enough, that bond yields will trade back above inflation again at some point. And if we run inflation around three on average, then I think bond yields will probably get 
in the three to four land before this recovery ends. If you don't expect runaway inflation, I don't necessarily see runaway bond yields. I don't think the fact that we're bottoming out the great bond bull of the last 40 years, which we all are probably, means that we're got to go right back to the 1970s with bond yields. I think a much more likely scenario is we come down and we just trade down here at low rate structures, kind of like we did after the depression for quite a while before they really went back up. It doesn't mean they won't go from maybe two-ish to four-ish or you know, get back in that range again, but I don't know if they're going to just surge back higher. And when you think about it in those terms, we're not that far out of whack. Heck, we could be back close to 2% by the end of the year if COVID comes down, growth picks up, people get optimistic again, inflation fears come back, Fed starts to take all those things could bring us back into that range pretty fast. What I would say about the bonds, high quality bonds, right now where they're priced to me, they are really on the verge of just being a non-viable asset. And what's interesting is we all, I manage a gap portfolio, we have 20% of minimum amount we can and bonds are some. And yet I don't know really why we're buying them because they just don't make a lot of sense to me. Most investors should think long and hard about how much they have there at least till they adjust. One of the head scratchers I feel for a lot of people that see what's going on in markets and they look at bond yields, they look at inflation is, I feel like a lot of people assume this should be a shining moment for gold and gold isn't doing much this year. In fact, it seems to be sliding in the wrong direction, uh, getting a little dusty. Is there any secular trends at play here? Is this an India-China story? Is it something that it just moved too far too fast? Or are people just not interested in their buying JPEGs and NFTs with money they would have bought with gold? Any general thoughts on the shiny metal? Gold's still, in my book, fairly elevated relative to commodity prices in general. It's, as I mentioned, outside of 2020 when it shot way up, and now it's come back down on a relative basis to other commodities. It's still, even before 2020, it was close to a 50-year high going back to 1970. So it's still up. And I think that is true. I think the biggest thing for gold is the same kind of thing for all defensive assets of late. That is to say, at the end of the day, when real GDP growth is 5 to 10%, and it's forecasted next year maybe even being 4.5-ish or something yet, if that is the case and profitability has recovered faster than almost ever before coming out of a cycle and has gone on to record highs. And there's more companies that continually outpace all any Wall Street expectations on the upside. I think that just kills off the favorability of defensive assets in China. It isn't just gold, low vol, defensive sectors, cash, certainly bonds, have not done real well, really in the post-pandemic rush, if you will. As you look around the world, what that we have not talked about has got you excited, concerned, confused, that's just on your mind. What's on your brain these days that uh, we haven't covered so far? One of them is valuation, which I'd like to visit a little bit about because I think it's the biggest thing holding stock investors back. And it's understandable. There's a couple of things to hit on that one. One is that we're in a very different valuation range now since 1990 for 30 years running than we were in in the previous 130 years prior, dating back to 1870. And people know that, but I mean, we're talking, if you took the Schiller Cave Moldable, we've been, 
I don't have the exact numbers in front of me right now, Matt, but we've been, if you look at the entire 160 year history or whatever, in the last 30 years, we've been trading above the 80th percentile three quarters of the time, <laughs> something like that. It isn't that it was dot com and it was a short period that we came back to normal. We've stayed at higher valuations really ever since 19. So I think we are in a new range, at least till we're not. And there's a whole host of reasons for that, I think, that I could get into if you want to, but it could persist. And it's not just low rates, but I do think that we're in a new range. And then if I look at that new range, what we're seeing now going all the way back even to the 80s is that when we start recoveries, valuations typically are very high. Happened in 82, happened in 90, it happened in 2003, happened in 2009. And then what happens is the bull goes on, stocks get cheaper. Since 90, we've had some tremendous, whether you look at price to trailing earnings or price to forward estimates, price earnings moments are coming down. This is exactly what happened here. We started this thing with like 30 sometimes trailing earnings. We're now down to 26 times trailing earnings. I think we're going to be close to 20 times trailing earnings going into next year. 20 sounds extraordinarily high for you and me or anyone that's been in the business for a while, because that was kind of the top end of the range prior to 1990. But 20 in the last 30 years is average. It's the average price to trailing earnings multiple. And I think we got a shot at going into next year at an average PE of around 20 times net trailing earnings. Now, I didn't even talk about how low rates are, but I think this market is far better valued than what people think. And maybe you're going to see some stories as we enter next year that suddenly it it's looking more reasonable, if you will. That's one thing I throw out. The other thing I throw out is on corrections. We could certainly get a correction any time. I think they're really difficult to call. And the problem with corrections is you think one's coming, and then the market goes up another 5% before it starts. And then you have a 15% correction. And then when it's bottoming out, you're not sure it's bottomed out. So it has to come up 5% before you convince. And by the time you get through that, I don't know if it pays to really put a lot of effort into it. I would be more inclined if two things existed. One is if I thought the bull market was more at a risk of ending soon or the economy was at risk of rolling over, which I think there's always a risk, but I don't think that's very high. And secondly, I just don't see the normal forces. Normally, bond yields have been going up, not down. Normally, inflation fears are strengthening, not kind of weakening off or moderating. Normally, the Fed's been tightening for a while and fiscal policy has been tightening for a while. Normally, we hadn't had a bunch of rolling corrections where everything's been corrected on some kind of relative basis, including technology over the last year. I would be more inclined to expect one after bond yields go back up, after inflation fears reignite, once the Fed's kind of into official tapering overall. We'll, we'll see about it, I guess. All right. So... We're going to slide down with a couple more questions before we let you go. You're an economist. We put you on a desert island or in a ice fishing shack on the lakes in, in Minnesota. And I say you can only have a couple charts or indicators, Jim, like any that are particular favorites when you're kind of scanning through. I've seen you talk about hundreds, if not thousands over the years. But are there any that hold a particularly near and dear to your heart, either that are unknown or ones that are well-known, you just happen to think have a lot of weight? What I try to do over the years is not get wedded necessarily to any one thing. Because what I've found out is I find things all the time that work fabulously, and then they blow up. 
And that's just what happens to them. I can tell you relationships that have been that way, that you could trade big money and make big money. And then suddenly one day they just didn't work. And that happens over and over again. I think that the markets remake themselves frequently and it's very difficult. I think that's why hedge funds blow up. I think that's why those things happen. But here's what I do. I am constantly looking at new things as well as old relationships. And what I do is go with, the weight of that evidence, where it takes me. If I got a number of things telling me one thing, I'll be more inclined to do that. So that's kind of how I go about doing things. And, and a lot of those are new things. As you know, when you read my things, you're going to see new indicators that, by gosh, I just found two, quite frankly. But more important to your point, if there's one thing you say to me that's the most important, I think it's always trying to figure out where is the consensus? What is their mindset? And where could they be wrong? Because if you can tell me whatever the consensus is, is why prices on everything are where they're at at the moment, whether it's dollar or stocks or bonds, doesn't matter. That reflects the cumulative buys and sell decisions of a consensus of individuals. So what you got to figure out at all times is of the consensus beliefs that are driving prices, what among those are the most vulnerable to shift away from what people think? And if they do, what will that do to different prices that you could exploit? And there's really a host of things that go into that. There's all kinds of sentiment measures and things of that nature, or it might just be a focus variable that the culture's totally focused on. The moment. I mean, over my time, you know, as the 80s, it was all about crude oil pricing for a while. It was all about the money supply, weekly money supply. It was all about employment claims. It just changes what is the focus variable at the moment. And how could that shift that would force a lot of players to change what they believe? That's what I try to focus on the most. And again, it's not any one thing indicator, but that concept, I think, is more important than anything, more important than growth rates or is just how strongly held beliefs that are embedded in prices could shift. It's always interesting when I have a belief or an idea and find myself on the giant consensus. It makes you nervous. It doesn't have to be wrong. Like that's consensus seems to be right most of the time. But when it gets into extreme territory, it makes me definitely uh, sit up and notice for a bit. And you look back on your career, what have been some of the most memorable, and you can pick one if you can think of one, but more, if not, moments in like, as an economist that you've, I mean, because you've been through 87 crash, like the all sorts of 90s emerging market, different Mexico and Asian flu, Y2K, on and on COVID. Any in particular that stand out as being particularly memorable for one reason or another? Well, there's things you remember, you know, I certainly remember the 87 crash probably better than anything. I think mainly, you know, I had this bright idea in the early 80s about you needed four markets, stocks, bonds, currencies and commodities to fully appreciate and, and split the financial market. So started the fund where you could go long and short. I thought you should be able to do both. <laughs> and I ran into the night and I ran it on quantitative models back then and, I ran into 87. It, it just killed me. It, it just washed it out. I learned a ton from that, quite frankly. <laughs> and so the whole 87 experience to me, even though I saw market correction coming, I, I just didn't expect it to be as extreme. That even told me something about leverage and about, and I, what I remember the best 
And I was doing so poorly in 1987 during the day that it was collapsing. I finally decided to leave to get a breather. I just couldn't take this anymore, get away from the Quotron. We needed the television, so I went to Best Buy to get a TV. And I walk in, and wall-to-wall was nothing but the stock market crash. (laughs) So absolute wrong decision to do it. I think I've become more and more immune to weird happenings just because I just feel like that's kind of been every year, every period has been there. I was joking with someone the other night. We were um, speaking, tying, completing the circle from the beginning of the podcast. I was talking about Mexican food at the beginning of this and was having a margarita. And I was talking about markets in general and saying, you know, I don't know what would surprise me at this point. You know, I mean, we've seen so much. If you studied history, you know that even crazier stuff has happened. But even then, weird stuff will always happen in the future. Like the example I was giving, I was that we had the longest stretch of up months in the stock market in the U.S. And that was only a couple of years ago. First calendar year, every month was up. And then, of course, last year, fastest ever, all-time high, bear market, bounce, boom. But <laughs> we were joking, made the extension one step further. We're like, well, there's an earthquake while we're having dinner here, which is not a big one for LA, 4-7. So I was like, you know, if we found out that that was actually caused by aliens that live at the center of the earth, I was like, I don't think my worldview would be that surprised. Be like, okay, that sounds crazy, but all right. <laughs> you know, like that's... So anyway, that's my approach to markets is to like have an appreciation for history the full understanding that things could be different and weirder in the future, and maybe aliens, who knows? <laughs> I agree with you. I believe just about anything anymore. Would alien discovery be bullish or bearish for stocks? <laughs> That's a good question. It opens up the total addressable market. All of a sudden, you have a potential for multiplanetary uh, economic good trade. It's got to be bullish. It sure increased world capital, I think, is what it would do. <laughs> Well, Jim, look, this has been fun. Where can people, they want to track what you're up to, your writings, your charts, your missives. Where do they go? What's the best places? You just go to lutholdgroup.com and you can look for the Paulson perspective. And I write, you know, generally a couple times a week. I mostly just write when I got something to write about. I love your content and we'll have to check in in the coming months to see uh, what weirdness we're experiencing in the world in uh, 2022 and beyond. Jim, it's been a blast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for Matt, for having me. And thanks, everybody, listening to me ramble on. I really appreciate it. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Cambria Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker symbol SYLD. SYLD is an actively managed ETF targeting value stocks that also rank highly on a metric called shareholder yield, which combines dividends and net buybacks. Visit www.cambriafunds.com forward slash SYLD to learn more. To determine if this fund is an appropriate investment for you, carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's full or summary prospectus, which may be obtained by calling 855-383-4636, also ETF info, or visiting our website at www.cambriafunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. The Cambria ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., 1290 Broadway, Suite 1000, Denver, Colorado, 80203, which is not affiliated with Cambria Investment Management LP, the investment advisor for the fund. On June 1st, 2020, the Cambria Shareholder Yield ETF changed its investment objective and investment strategy. The fund also changed from being passively managed to actively managed on that date. 
There's no guarantee the fund will achieve its investment goal. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. High-yielding stocks are often speculative, high-risk investments. The underlying holdings of the fund may be leveraged, which will expose the holdings to higher volatility and may accelerate the impact of any losses. These companies can be paying out more than they can support and may reduce their dividends or stop paying dividends at any time, which could have a material adverse effect on the stock price of these companies and the fund's performance. Investments in smaller companies typically exhibit higher volatility. Narrowly focused funds typically exhibit higher volatility. The fund is managed using proprietary investment strategies and processes. There can be no guarantee these strategies and processes will produce the intended results and no guarantee that the fund will achieve its investment objective. This could result in the fund's underperformance compared to other funds with similar investment objectives. There is no guarantee dividends will be paid. Diversification may not protect against market loss. Shareholder yield refers to how much money shareholders receive from a company that is in the form of cash dividends, net stock repurchases, and debt reduction. Buybacks are also known as share repurchases. When a company buys its own outstanding shares to reduce the number of shares available on the open market, thus increasing the proportion of shares owned by investors. Companies buy back shares for a number of reasons, such as increase the value of remaining shares available by reducing the supply or to prevent other shareholders from taking a controlling stake.